If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For much of the late Middle Ages, the relationship between Scotland and England was an antagonistic one, and the border region between the two kingdoms proved a flashpoint for this mutual enmity. Our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, spoke to Michael Brown, lecturer in medieval history at the University of St Andrews, to discuss everything you wanted to know about the Anglo-Scottish border wars. It's a story that takes in greed, plunder, Henry VIII, and French interference. As always with our Everything You Wanted to Know series, the questions are drawn from a mixture of popular internet search queries and ones that you've submitted on our various social media platforms. So Michael, we're here to talk about a series of conflicts known as the Anglo-Scottish Border Wars. Now, we've had a question submitted by Franchise505 on Instagram, which is... What were the border wars and when were they they fought? Now, I thought this would be quite a good place to start, as I'm guessing that um, quite a lot of our listeners' knowledge of this episode in British history will be a little bit sketchy. So, yeah, I wonder if you could start by defining the border wars and giving us a precy of the, the, the chief milestones in these conflicts. Yes, that's a good point. It, it is a, a war that people may have come across, incidentally, with some of the episodes, but probably a lot of people don't have a clear sense of, of its course and, and, in a way, almost um, what it's about. And I'm thinking quite uh, probably a lot more people have heard of William Wallace and Robert Bruce um, and the wars that Edward I and his successors fight in Scotland. Well, these border wars really come out of those earlier conflicts um, as always, I suppose, it's a lot easier to start wars than it is to stop them. And the efforts by the English kings from Edward I onwards to conquer Scotland create a kind of legacy of, of conflict, um, which goes on for the next mm, two and a half centuries. 
Um, and it's really because I think the English kings are reluctant to give up the claims they have on Scotland and also because they continue to hold territory in the, the Scottish borders. But what differentiates these conflicts, I think, from those Scottish wars of independence that they're often called, um, is the fact that the, the war becomes confined to the frontier between the two kingdoms. So really war is from the 1330s onwards confined to the region between Newcastle and Edinburgh. What time span are we talking here? I think we're talking really from the end of the 1330s when the last real English efforts to conquer Scotland peter out and the Hundred Years' War with France starts and that tends to draw English kings uh, to the continent rather than to the north through to the middle of the 16th century. So that's that's over 200 years of intermittent warfare. And I think that's that's the point as well, that this isn't a single kind of sustained conflict. It's a state of war that exists between England and Scotland, which is never really resolved. I mean, there are attempts to resolve it in the end, in the early 16th century, but they don't last. Um, so the war really lasts sort of officially from the 1330s through to the early 1560s, which is a phenomenal amount of time, if you like. You know, it's a 200-year war, if you like. So what are the main milestones in the conflict? Which, you know, what are the, say, four or five incidents, confrontations that our listeners need to know about if they want to get an understanding of, of what went on here? I think I'd pick out, yeah, I'd pick out a few points on the, the, the way. One of them is probably, it's not characterised by a big battle, it's characterised by um, intense local warfare in the 1340s and 1350s. And I think that sets the rules. It sets the rules for the conflicts which follow. It tends to be characterised by a lot of cross-border raiding, um, by Scottish attempts to capture those English castles, that English-held castles that are still in Scotland, in English hands. Um, and it's dominated increasingly by families from the region. So particularly in that phase, uh, the Douglases um, and the Dunbars in Scotland and the Percys and increasingly the Nevilles in Northern England. And these great noble families make their reputations and build their power on the war. And they've kind of got a vested interest in controlling the conflict. So that that those rules are set up in the mid-14th century. Then I'd probably go on to Otterburn, the Battle of Chevy Chase, sometimes known as, which is a subject of ballads and poems during the, the late Middle Ages and early modern period. And it's a kind of crazy nighttime battle in which the leader of the Scottish army goes into the fight in his dressing gown because he's been woken up in the middle of the night and it's cut down. The Earl of Douglas is cut down, but his army wins. So it's a dead man wins the fight is what everybody says about Otterburn. And across Europe, it's recognised as this kind of chivalric clash between two noble families. Um, but it's also part of this ongoing border war, um, which is partly between two states, but it's also partly between, uh, if you like, individual nobles fighting for their own interest. So Otterburn, I think, characterises that period um, really quite nicely. And what changes in the 15th century is that the periods of you know, full-on warfare become more scattered. You have lots of long truces, and war becomes increasingly the prerogative of the governments on both sides. They're kind of taking back control of the conflict. Um, and I suppose that probably the battle on the borders that everybody's heard of is the Battle of Flodden in 1513, when James IV leads an army into Northumberland in support of his French ally. 
Henry VIII has invaded France. And of course, James comes to a disastrous defeat um, on the slopes of Brankston Hill, where he's killed and many of his nobility are killed. And it's a huge kind of psychological shock to Scotland in the early 16th century. And then I suppose the other kind of period that you pick up on, and many identify as the kind of golden age of the, the border reavers, is the kind of middle 50 years of the 16th century, um, when you've got poor relations between England and Scotland, and essentially families on both sides exploiting that um, financially and socially to kind of um, do what they want, essentially. Um, raid across the border, raid within their own countries. And they're simply off the leash. And those families, I think, are what people have sort of picked up on as characteristic. These Reaver families, I think, characterise uh, the borders that develops from this long Anglo-Scottish conflict. Right, our next question comes from Harry C on Instagram, and that is, how bloody were these border wars compared to other border conflicts in Europe at the time? And I'd just like to expand on that a little, just to ask, I mean, how much were the border regions scarred physically and economically by the conflict between the two nations? And, and what was it like to live in and around the borders at this time? Oh, that's, that's a good question. Um, and it's one we'd probably like to know more about. But I think, I think you can pick up some examples of how this period changes the region um, and that would be to look at the two Scottish boroughs that have grown up in uh, the, the south, the Tweed Valley, during the period before the wars, and that's Berwick-upon-Tweed, Berwick, and Roxburgh uh, inland near Kelso. And Berwick in the years before the war breaks out is the biggest borough in Scotland by some distance. It's the only real urban centre in Scotland as, as we might recognise it. And inland, Roxburgh is a thriving town built round uh, a royal castle up on, up on a ridge. Well, if you go to Roxburgh now, there's nothing there. It's fields. The castle is a kind of few bits of ruined masonry on top of, a, on top of this you know, high site. Uh, and similarly, Berwick changes from being this commercial entrepot, big trading centre, into being a garrison town on the frontier. And I think that encapsulates the shift from a society which is... You know, it's it's not particularly militarised. The frontier with England is relatively peaceful to one in which uh, war determines the shape of everything, that towns have to be defended. And outside those towns, people have to, to be ready to take up arms at any point. And society changes on both sides of the border uh, to be dominated by these riding kindreds, these, these families who are you know, all about the war, all about war and the opportunities it presents. And I think for those families, um, you know, th this is what they do. This is who they are. So it defines their identity. Um, but it does speak of a society which becomes organised for war. And I think going back to your, to your first question, um, that puts the Anglo-Scottish borders on a par with a number of other regions across Europe in the, the medieval and early modern period. You could think of somewhere like uh, central and southern Spain, where you've got the frontier between uh, the Christian kingdoms and the Islamic states uh, in Spain. And, and there, too, you get an intense militarization, a lot of fortification of villages and, and churches and things like that, something you see on the borders. Um, similarly, in the Balkans, in the, the late medieval period, when you're getting Ottoman expansion, the Ottoman Turks expanding into that region, that becomes um, similarly characterized. But I suppose what's different, obviously, is those at religious frontiers. 
And you, you could look in Ireland, for example, where you've got a lot of incipient warfare between the English and Irish um, in the late medieval period and within those groups too. Um, but there, there's a kind of cultural difference. What, what's different on the borders is there's really no cultural or linguistic or religious difference one side to the other of the frontier. This is a political division um, which reshapes uh, the boundary between, between the two kingdoms and defines the kingdoms more broadly behind the frontier as well. Actually, that last point you made uh, takes us nicely on to uh, our next question, which also came in on Instagram. And that is, were the Northern English and Southern Scots ever reluctant to fight because they were more familiar with one another than their own compatriots? And I, I, I guess this is kind of an interesting point, isn't it? Because to the people in Northern England, London must have felt a very, very long way away in this period. And and likewise, I guess, to a slightly lesser extent, the same must have, you know, must have applied to people living in Scotland's border areas in relation to Edinburgh. So, I mean, how did that dynamic play out? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the difference from the start is that for the Scottish borderers and for the Scottish government, the frontier is much closer to the centre of power. Um, and they've always got a much closer eye on it and are much more concerned with it. For England, for the English government at Westminster, it, it is very much further away. But you're right, there is a kind of dynamic within the region which clearly um, crosses the border. And I think it, it does exist. There's a lot of debate about how much kind of there's a common borders feeling uh, in this period. But I think when it comes to actual war, the two sides recognise that, you know, this is what they're there for. You know, it is partly why they claim a special role is because they're defending their kingdom. So they have to play that role. Um, on occasion, their other instincts get in the way. So at Flodden, for example, famously, the, the, the Scottish borderers attack and rout the English borderers in front of them and then go on to plunder the English camp while the rest of the Scottish army is, is, is uh, cut down. Um, so there's a kind of profiteering motive, I think, which is quite clear and in in scottish border laws there's really strict regulations about people not taking plunder not taking captives and then going home with them and um, so clearly it's a problem you know if you're leading a force of borderers they'll go and drive off the local cattle from uh, english areas and then they'll go home with them um, so it's that kind of thing's an issue discipline if you like and the desire to plunder where you get cross-border interaction is mostly seems to be about a lesser level of violence something we might call crime rather than warfare. And it's a really hazy boundary between those two things. So clearly what a lot of border families do on both sides is that they have safe places across the border. So when they're robbing from their own fellow countrymen, they'll drive off the cattle, the livestock, the sheep across the border where it can't be got at by the Scottish authorities. And, and the English similarly do the same thing. So they're in a kind of free zone which allows them a kind of latitude from their own perspective. But I think when they're participating in a war, they know that, if you like, their obligations mean they have to, to do their job, uh, and their job is to defend the border. So, And I think that's the other thing, that they're very conscious of being English or Scottish. The, there's a border identity in terms of behaviour, but not in terms of actual allegiance or identity. Okay, now we're going to turn to Twitter and a question submitted by Talking Sport. And that is, how were the borders of the two nations defined? And I guess a, 
a subsidiary question to this is how much territory actually changed hands over the centuries? Not a lot, considering how much uh, warfare goes on. Um, I mean, the the war, I suppose, from a Scottish side is about recovering territory, which is in Scotland. And, you know, the Anglo-Scottish border is set before these wars start and doesn't really change on those terms. So it's about recovering the bits of Scotland that English troops, English officials still hold, um, and that those become fixed in the borders. I mean, the, the, the Scottish Wars of Independence, there are English garrisons and troops all through parts of Scotland. Um, but from the 1330s onwards, it's places like Berwick, obviously, Roxburgh, um, Lochmaben, um, just uh, in Annandale in the, in the west, um, and Jedburgh, you know, right on the Anglo-Scottish border. Those are the last four English garrisons. And they're gradually whittled down by the Scots until in the 1460s, the Scots have recovered them all one way or another. And then, of course, in 1482, war renews and uh, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, the future Richard III, captures Berwick back from the Scots. But the English never see Berwick as an English town. It's always Berwick within Scotland, but they claim to be the rightful rulers of Scotland. So it's just something they hold outside their kingdom in the way that at that point, of course, they hold Calais as well. So these are kind of foreign cities, foreign towns within the English king's hands. So it's not really about territory, it's about, you know, it's about political power, I suppose. Note a question from Hannah Laura Ridgely uh, submitted on Instagram. She asks, why did the Scottish support the House of Valois during this time? So I guess what we'd like to know is, you know, what role did France play in perpetuating the border wars between England and Scotland? And, and how did their presence sort of ratchet up tensions between the two nations? That's a really good question. And I think it's interesting that, you know, we, we, we've brought this down to a war, which is a conflict over a few towns and a few valleys, but it's also a European war. Um, it's a war which sits alongside um, the Hundred Years' War. It's, it's from one perspective, it's like a theatre of the Hundred Years' War or a parallel conflict with it. And of course, the Scots in that conflict see their interest and increasingly their kind of prestige as being bound up with supporting the King of France against the King of England. So supporting the Valois, as the questioner asked. And the alliance is a guarantee for the Scots that they won't face the English in isolation. As long as the war with France goes on, then they'll know that most resources from the English side will be put towards fighting the, the King of France rather than coming north. And so really through the Hundred Years' War, so from the 1330s through to the 1450s, the Scots comfortably cling to that. And it works very well for them, um, provides them with opportunities for service in warfare on the continent as well. After the Hundred Years' War ends with the expulsion of the English from most of their French uh, lands, then the politics becomes more complicated, I think. But the Scots still recognise, for the most part, that they're safer to be allies of the, Fran the French than almost to seek a peace with the English. When, when the King of Scots, James III, for example, not entirely from his own fault, essentially chooses to make better relations with England rather than with France, what he finds less than a decade later is that he's fighting the English on his own. Um, and I think that's a lesson for his son and grandson, keep the French alliance, because it, it means that the English will always be worried if they go to war with Scotland, 
that they'll face uh, action to the south from from the French. Um, and it works both ways. It doesn't work terribly well as a kind of you know, combined operations alliance, but it works quite well as a, as a deterrent and a worry for the English crown. Um, and I think that, that attitude really persists into the middle of the 16th century, where because of things like the Reformation um, and the Reformation in Scotland taking place in very different character 30 years after the Reformation in England, puts England and Scotland on the same page against a lot of the kind of Catholic kingdoms that both both kingdoms have traditionally allied with. So to England's connections with uh, the Low Countries and with Spain, Scotland's connections with France, they all get kind of thrown up into the air by, by the Reformation. And I think that essentially pushes the two kingdoms closer together. So what was in it if, in it for the French in, in, in your earlier days? Is it basically to keep the English fighting on two fronts? Yes, it is. It, it's it's a, it, For the French, I think it's one of a number of connections. You know, for the Scots, it has this kind of central importance. It's not the only alliance they pursue. They have very strong trading links with Flanders. They pursue, pursue links with, with uh, Scandinavian kingdoms. Um, but the French alliance is kind of the central core of their external relations. For the French, it's less important. But it has a value because they see the Scots as fighting a common enemy. And a lot of the correspondence between the two kingdoms stresses that, you know, that the English are the disturbers of Christendom and the Scots and the French are their natural victims. Therefore, they have to side with each other. And it's useful for the French also as a recruiting ground. Um, At the kind of lowest point of the Hundred Years' War, when uh, they're fighting Henry V, about 10,000 Scottish soldiers go to France over the space of about seven years um, and provide the backbone of French armies during that period. They're not spectacularly successful on the battlefield, but they sustain the conflict and create a body of people of Scottish origin who are now French landowners. And that kind of Franco-Scottish class, I think, provides a really potent set of intermediaries between Scotland and France. And, and the, for the Scots in particular, the connection becomes one of affection. A lot of these people are really influential at the French court too. So there's a kind of Scottish lobby around the French king who who try to push their own, if you like, homelands uh, links to, to, to France onto the French political table. So there's a kind of lobby group there, uh, like some of the kind of lobbies we see around the world now uh, of expats or people with family connections. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. James, I think, almost perhaps convinced by his own publicity, um, stays too long in England, is, is, is caught there, still thinks he can win, um, and, and leads his army to this disastrous defeat. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, um... E. Spencer 074 on Instagram asks, and this is quite a popular question actually on social media, 
who were the Reavers? And I, I, I guess a lot of people who have heard of the Reavers without knowing a huge amount about them. So I wonder if you, if you could enlighten us a little. Um, I mean, a Reaver is a robber, uh, is someone who go and goes and, and steals other people's possessions, I suppose, put bluntly. Um, but uh, they are a really interesting phenomenon because they represent a response within society as a whole to the changing conditions that are prevailing in that region on both sides of the borders. Um, the fact that, you know, as I was saying earlier, what the two royal governments want are men uh, who are able to defend their own localities so that those crowns don't have to pour money into garrisons and troops all the time. Um, so there's a value in having kind of uh, a militarised society there. Um, but what that tends to mean in practice is that, if you like, leadership devolves lower and lower down the social spectrum. So you have big more border families like the Douglases and Percys, but increasingly those families themselves rely on groups of lesser followers, people who are their tenants. And what's interesting on the Scottish side is a lot of those families that dominate the landscape in the 15th and 16th century have their origins in you know, the southern uplands. So in the kind of hilly spine of the borders, um, what's called Selkirk Forest or Ettrick Forest. Um, so families like the Scots and the Kerrs and the Turnbulls seem to originate in that region and then spread out to acquire lands and roles all over the borders and lower down. So it's a kind of social significance in terms of shifting, if you like, leadership away from um, sort of fertile uh, arable land in the, the lower river valleys to good herding, grazing lands in the, the higher uh, hills and moors of, of that region. So there's a kind of geographical shift as well, because if you've got a land of war, you can drive away your livestock to places of safety, but your grain, your crops is going to be either harvested or burned by, by the enemy. So I think there's a shift to a kind of more pastoral society. And it's the kind of thing you see happening in places like um, the Highlands in Scotland, the borderlands in Ireland in the late medieval period, where lots of families of English descent start acting like Irishmen, um, and that includes being herders rather than farmers, I suppose. And so you've got a kind of social structure which is about small, compact groups of people who regarded themselves as interconnected because of their family links. So what are called the surnames. So families like the Armstrongs, the Scots, the Nixons, uh, the Ogles, you know, all these kind of border surnames that persist. And you know, I think that's the way in which a lot of people come into contact with this conflict because they're looking at their own family histories and they're seeing that their surname links them to one of these, these border families. So I think there's a family dynamic to it, you know, that the, these are, you know, if they're in the Highlands, we talk about clans and we talk about surnames in the borders. But these are the kind of leading families of the region. Some of them at the top are quite important nobles, but they're kind of junior branches of their family equally. They're, they're, they're quite... Um, small-scale landowners whose economic and social status depends on leading people in raiding and, and plundering attacks. So it's a way in which society shifts. Um, and all those ballads that Walter Scott, of course, collected in the uh, 19th century, it's part of that kind of cultural uh, identification with these people. These people are 
in a way, like the people in the sagas, they're heroic figures. You know, they're tragic figures sometimes. They're rascally bad people as well. Um, but they are the people you think about as defining that region. Is there a danger, of, uh, especially through the works of Walter Scott, of over-romanticising the Reavers? Yeah, I mean, I don't think these were nice people in any sense. I mean, they are they are people who live from plundering others. They live from violence. Um, but what they're doing, I suppose, is they are providing their own dependents and their own families with the living that economically from the ground is hard to get from other ways. So it's a raiding society. Um, and raiding societies, you know, they, they prey on people around them. And I mean, the response of their neighbours, of course, is, is perhaps most famously summed up by the great cursing of the Archbishop of Glasgow of all the border kindreds in the 1520s, when, you know, he curses their heads, he curses the hairs on their heads, he curses their eyes, their mouths, their tongues, curses their sheep, their oxen, their, you know, he curses everything to do with them, and it goes on for pages. I think that's the kind of response. It's his diocese, you know, he's the Archbishop, and he's seeing his ordinary uh, flock, if you like, his parishioners, plundered by these these border reavers and this is his response he's, he's forbidding anybody for having any dealings with them a final question on the reavers is, is, is there any individual personality you'd like to introduce us to is there any really colorful characters that sort of you know shape the history of the reavers um i mean my, my favorite and i suppose in some sense he's not a classic reaver is william douglas of liddesdale in the early 14th century or the mid 14th century who is in a way, the kind of proto-reaver. He's a junior member of an important family, like a lot of the reavers later on, um, who carves out a career for himself based on his, his military leadership. Um, much of his family has either gone into exile or is dead due to defeats by the English. And he captures the castle of Hermitage, which one of these great border keeps, perhaps you know the, the, the kind of archetypal uh, border fortress, and um, essentially uses it as a base from which he attacks um, anybody and everybody who gets in his way. And, for example, one of his um, fellow Scottish leaders, Alexander Ramsay, in a way steps on his toes by capturing Roxburgh Castle. So when uh, uh, Ramsay is holding his court as sheriff at, at, at Hoyk, Douglas simply descends, seizes Ramsay, takes him off to Hermitage Castle and starves him to death. And, yeah, so these, these aren't pleasant people, but they are guys whose uh, motivation is is um, very clear. And from the Scottish side, people writing about Douglas Liddesdale are torn between the idea that he's, he's, you know, he's wrecking the unity of his own kingdom, but also that he is heroic. He has spent his career recovering parts of southern Scotland from the English. Now, staying on the... The subjects of personalities, who would you say of all the English monarchs in this period uh, pursued the wars most vigorously and why? English kings, yeah, I mean, their attention is drawn elsewhere for the most part. Um, so when they focus on Scotland, it, it's for specific reasons, I think. And I mean, I think the, the, the kings that spring to mind um, are probably Edward IV, who partly because he's made peace with France and the French king is paying him a large pension to keep that peace, turns his attention on Scotland. And um, though he never actually manages to get quite 
fat by the stage he's waging war and he never managed to get his bulky frame all the way up to the Scottish border and sends his brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, Richard III, uh, to wage it for him. He seems to develop an intense dislike for the Scots, partly because he's, he thinks he's got a peace treaty with them and the Scots aren't keeping it. So, so Edward IV. And then, interestingly, his grandson, Henry VIII, of course, um, who models himself in a lot of ways on Edward IV and is obviously someone who regards himself as a warrior king, even though, again, physically he starts to lose the ability to do that. And I think it's a matter of frustration to him that the great victory over the Scots um, at Flodden is won whilst he's actually on the continent looking for kind of military glory. So he's looking the wrong way at the crucial point. But at the end of his reign in the 1540s, he unleashes a huge war on Scotland, uh, seeking to force the Scots to unite with England through the marriage of Mary, Queen of Scots, the infant uh, Queen of Scotland, um, with his son, Edward, Prince of Wales. And that's that's known as the rough wooing, because the idea is he's forcing the, the Scots to, to, to marry, um, to give up their uh, independence through marriage. Um, so Henry VIII, I think, is probably the one who causes most damage to, to Scotland um, during the period um, from the 1330s through to the 1550s. And who did the English find to be their most uh, significant um, sort of opponent in Scotland? Uh, who caused the English the most headaches in this period? That's an interesting question. I mean, a lot of the Scottish leadership in the early period, it, it's not the kings who are leading directly. It's nobles like the Douglases, um, for example. Um, if you're picking a king, I'd probably say James II, um, who's the king at the start of the Wars of the Roses um, in England, so in the 1450s, um, and who is intent on um, like prodding the English as far as he can. He's, he's um, determined to recover Roxburgh and Berwick, which are the two places still held by the English, and actually is killed besieging Roxburgh in 1460. But at a point when English politics is, is starting to fall to pieces and you're starting to get towards civil war, James II is just timing his jabs to, to cause the maximum irritation to the English. And in a slightly different way, I think James IV, who again also comes a cropper in, in war with, with the English, um, but who up to um, his death is someone who's, I think, irritating Henry VIII, particularly in the sense of presenting himself as a competitor. Um, so, for example, diplomatically, he's very much um, moving around English interests, posing himself, selling himself to continental rulers as someone who can cause damage to the English um, and, and you know, benefiting from that diplomatic process. He builds a large, by Scottish standards, Royal Navy for the first time. Um, again, you know, Henry's forced or wants to kind of compete with that and starts building up his big ships in the, the English Navy as well, most famously the Mary Rose, of course. Um, so James IV is someone who I think gets under Henry VIII's skin, and that's partly why Henry is so delighted when James is killed uh, at, at Flodden. So James II and James IV, James V similarly irritates Henry as well. I mean, Henry's quite <laughs> easy to irritate, to be honest. So the Scottish kings, simply by being there and by being able to pose across Europe as these people who have a kind of special hold on uh, a sort of vulnerable part of the English king's lands, um, I think they're always a pause for thought. Of course, many of them die young, and therefore you have periods of minority when, when the Scottish kingdom is much more vulnerable. Um, but those would be the kings I'd pick. Now can we talk about Flodden in a 
a, a little bit more detail, please. We, we've had a question in from Be The Beck on Instagram, simply asking, why was the Battle of Florence so disastrous for the Scots? And, and you know, what was the aftermath of, of defeat in the battle for the nation? That's a good question. I mean, Flodden does have this kind of emblematic significance for Scotland. I think, in a way, it's it's so disastrous because at that point, the Scottish king, James IV, is so successful, is so popular, and therefore is able to both pull together an army which contains almost, well, a good proportion of the Scottish nobility, and therefore when it's defeated, the losses are much greater. And I think James is also showing perhaps the degree to which he's forgotten some of the rules by which the Scots operate. Scottish military uh, uh, engagements with England in the previous century have mostly consisted of, of, of like Scottish incursions into northern England. But if a major English army approaches, they withdraw. Uh, they, they find a defensive strategy, knowing that the English, by and large, never have the resources to penetrate very far into Scotland. They know what to do if an English army does come in, which is to, to withdraw into the hills, to take your, you know, strip the land of, of, of food supplies and wait for the English to go home. James, I think, almost perhaps convinced by his own publicity, um, stays too long in England, is, is, is caught there, still thinks he can win. Um, and and leads his army to this disastrous defeat. So it's a miscalculation, I think, born perhaps of success, which is why Flodden is so disastrous. There's really been no battle like that um, on the borders for for over a century. So it it is a change in that way. And the losses, I think, uh, uh, are what psychologically scar Scotland. Now, I think in terms of, you know, the aftermath militarily or politically, there really isn't one. You know, there is no huge shift in power between England and Scotland as a result of it. But, um, you know, a, a lot of families have lost people in, in that battle. Um, interestingly, in Edinburgh, for example, you're getting the financial returns of the borough being returned by by women um, because their husbands haven't returned. The, 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 the accounting of the, the, the city's uh, financial records is due. Therefore, uh, the wives of these Burgesses are, are stepping up to, to render the accounts, um, which I think is a significant sort of shift in terms of, of losses. And something you might think of, you know, about women working in the world wars, for example, that it, it's that scale of participation. Um, so I think, you know, the, the debate, there used to be a traditional view that it affected Scottish attitudes through the 16th century and pushed them towards you know, the union of the crowns. I don't think really there's any evidence for that. By the by, the fifth, late 1510s, 1520s, the Scots are back pursuing their policies as they have before. They're much more strongly in the French camp than they have been even under James IV. So there's no sense in which this is a, a shift in the, the, the kingdom's political stance or political independence, but it is, I think, something that doesn't get forgotten and and still strikes a, a resonance. And the links that were drawn in the early 20th century, for example, with World War One and Flodden, I think, speaks to the way in which that's part of the, the kind of national psyche. Right. Now, how did the succession of James VI of Scotland to the English throne as James I also the landscape in in terms of relations between the two nations. I mean, did it instantly bring tensions to an end? I, mean, I think tensions have been reducing anyway. Um, as I was saying earlier, I think the Reformation, 
and the fact that France in the late 16th centuries is involved in mostly wars of religion internally lessens the value and significance of the the, the Franco-Scottish alliance and pushes England and Scotland closer together. Elizabeth's policies towards Scotland are much more um, low-key and nuanced um, than her father's had been. So she she does send an army to Scotland in 1561, and it um, it's really there, in a sense, it presents itself as coming to bolster the, the kind of Protestant regime against re- rebels. And similarly, in you know her her role in the removal of Mary Queen of Scots at the end of the 1560s, um, so Elizabeth's policies towards Scotland are much more softly, softly, um, and the fact that James the Sixth knows that he has a place in the Tudor succession, as uh, succession to the English throne, I think moderates his behaviour too. Um, so the the two royal dynasties, I think, are behaving in a different way. In the borders, I'm not sure much has changed uh, in terms of local violence and local uh, robbery. Um, but what James VI is pushing for and what changes for the borders after 1603, of course, is that he's king of both kingdoms. Um, and he talks about the middle shires of his kingdom, meaning the, the borders. So as opposed to being a frontier, they're now sort of in the in the middle of this new Anglo-Scottish uh, United Kingdom. Um and he starts to um, be much more serious about clamping down on their illegal activities, if you like. Though he's, he's not entirely successful in that, and, and you know they're still legislating against particularly robbery in the borders in the uh, kind of late 17th century, in the 1660s, and after that. So um, it does shift, obviously, the, the the position and significance of the borders. It doesn't unite the two kingdoms. You still have a Scottish and an English kingdom. And, and when things fall apart in the mid-17th century, of course, it, it's on different terms in, in each of the three kingdoms that Charles I rules. But Scotland's role in the, the civil wars of the mid-17th century is, is as one of the participants, as opposed to being a foreign kingdom, as it was with the Wars of the Roses. And I think that that's a shift too. You know, it, it's the same king who's being objected to in different ways in each of the kingdoms. Um, so rather than being a foreign power, Scotland is part of the landscape. I was just kind of interested to know that, given all the enmity that existed between the two nations in the previous centuries, I mean, how did the people react to the prospects of one king rule in both kingdoms? I mean, was it anathema to a lot of people, that idea? Um, I think, well, from an English perspective, I think there's a lot of unhappiness of how many Scottish nobles come down to the English court and are rewarded by James VI. And I think from the, that kind of answers the question from the Scottish side. It's their king who's becoming king of England. Um, and in terms of the elite, I think most of them see it as an opportunity rather than a, a threat. And at that point, I think it's not, neither kingdom is losing its traditions of kingship. Um, you know, I think over the longer period, what changes in Scotland is you have an absentee king, and that does create pressures, but that's not apparent, I think, for a while. You know, James VI initially says he'll come back to Scotland every year, and I think he comes back once to Scotland um, in the next 20, 22 years or uh, that he's king of, of both kingdoms. So it kind of gradually beds in, I suppose. Uh, I mean, there are problems with absentee government, but I don't think, because of the way it happens, I don't think the Scots see it as a a loss of sovereignty or status. In fact, possibly, if anything, it's the other way around. And finally, Michael, 
What impact uh, do the border wars have on attitudes to Anglo-Scottish relations today? I mean, how do they play, for example, into ideas of uh, Scottish nationalism and the independence debate? I mean, do they play into it at all? Uh, that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I think it's striking that when people look for kind of historical motifs, they're looking at Wallace and Bruce, they're looking at, at Bannerburn and Stirling Bridge, they're looking at the earlier period, when in a way the issues can be made to seem simpler. And for Scots, of course, more resonant in terms of being a kind of uh, visceral st- struggle for survival as a separate country. The wars that follow, I suppose, uh, are more complicated, more conventional in some ways too, and therefore have tended to feed less into uh, debates about um, Scotland's survival as a nation, but they are Scotland functioning as a, a normal late medieval and early modern European state, uh, finding its friends, finding its enemies, working out how its interests work, the kind of diplomacy played out in a different way that, a, that an independent Scotland would, would have to, to resurrect. That was Michael Brown, lecturer in medieval history at the University of St Andrews. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.